Section 3 of The Autobiography of Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, June 2009. The Autobiography of Charles Darwin, edited by his son Francis Darwin. Voyage of the Beagle from December 27, 1831 to October 2, 1836. On returning home from my short geological tour in North Wales, I found a letter from Henslow informing me that Captain Fitzroy was willing to give up part of his own cabin to any young man who would volunteer to go with him without pay as a naturalist to the Voyage of the Beagle. I have given, as I believe, in my MS journal, an account of all the circumstances which then occurred. I will here only say that I was instantly eager to accept the offer, but my father strongly objected, adding the words, fortunate for me, if you can find any man of common sense who advises you to go, I will give my consent. So I wrote that evening and refused the offer. On the next morning I went to Mare to be ready for September 1st, and, while out shooting, my uncle, Josiah Wedgwood, sent for me, offering to drive me over to Shrewsbury and talk with my father, as my uncle thought it would be wise in me to accept the offer. My father always maintained that he was one of the most sensible men in the world, and he at once consented in the kindest manner. I had been rather extravagant at Cambridge, and to console my father, said that I should be deuced clever to spend more than my allowance while on board the Beagle. But he answered with a smile, but they tell me you are very clever. Next day I started for Cambridge to see Henslow, and thence to London to see Fitzroy, and all was soon arranged. Afterwards, on becoming very intimate with Fitzroy, I heard that I had run a very narrow risk of being rejected, on account of the shape of my nose. He was an ardent disciple of Lavater, and was convinced that he could judge of a man's character by the outline of his features, and he doubted whether any one with my nose could possess sufficient energy and determination for the voyage but I think he was afterwards well satisfied that my nose had spoken falsely. Fitzroy's character was a singular one, with very many noble features. He was devoted to his duty, generous to a fault, bold, determined, and indomitably energetic, and an ardent friend to all under his sway. He would undertake any sort of trouble to assist those whom he thought deserved assistance. He was a handsome man, strikingly like a gentleman, with highly courteous manners, which resembled those of his maternal uncle, the famous Lord Castlereagh, as I was told by the minister at Rio. Nevertheless, he must have inherited much in his appearance from Charles II, for Dr. Wallach gave me a collection of photographs which he had made, and I was struck with the resemblance of one to Fitzroy, and on looking at the name, I found it Charles E. Sobieski Stewart, Count d'Aubigny, a descendant of the same monarch. Fitzroy's temper was a most unfortunate one. 
It was usually worst in the early morning, and with his eagle eye he could generally detect something amiss about the ship, and was then unsparing in his blame. He was very kind to me, but as a man very difficult to live with on the intimate terms which necessarily followed from our messing by ourselves in the same cabin. We had several quarrels. For instance, early in the voyage at Bahia, in Brazil, he defended and praised slavery, which I abominated, and told me that he had just visited a great slave owner, who had called up many of his slaves, and asked them whether they were happy, and whether they wished to be free, and all answered no. I then asked him, perhaps with a sneer, whether he thought that the answers of slaves in the presence of their master was worth anything. This made him excessively angry, and he said that, as I doubted his word, we could not live any longer together. I thought that I should have been compelled to leave the ship, but as soon as the news spread, which it did quickly, as the captain sent for the first lieutenant to assuage his anger by abusing me, I was deeply gratified by receiving an invitation from all the gunroom officers to mess with them, but after a few hours Fitzroy showed his usual magnanimity by sending an officer to me with an apology, and a request that I would continue to live with him. His character was in several respects one of the most noble which I have ever known. The voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life, and has determined my whole career. Yet it depended on so small a circumstance as my uncle offering to drive me thirty miles to Shrewsbury, which few uncles would have done, and on such a trifle as the shape of my nose. I have always felt that I owe to the voyage the first real training or education of my mind. I was led to attend closely to several branches of natural history, and thus my powers of observation were improved, though they were always fairly developed. The investigation of the geology of all the places visited was far more important, as reasoning here comes into play. On first examining a new district, nothing can appear more hopeless than the chaos of rocks, but by recording the stratification and nature of the rocks and fossils at many points, always reasoning and predicting what will be found elsewhere, light soon begins to dawn on the district, and the structure of the whole becomes more or less intelligible. I had brought with me the first volume of Lyell's Principles of Geology, which I studied attentively, and the book was of the highest service to me in many ways. The very first place which I examined, namely St. Hago in the Cape de Verde Islands, showed me clearly the wonderful superiority of Lyell's manner of treating geology, compared with that of any other author whose works I had with me, or ever afterwards read. Another of my occupations was collecting animals of all classes briefly describing and roughly dissecting many of the marine ones. But from not being able to draw, and from not having sufficient anatomical knowledge, a great pile of manuscript which I made during the voyage has proved almost useless. I thus lost much time, with the exception of that spent in acquiring some knowledge of the crustaceans, as this was of service 
when in after years I undertook a monograph of the Cirripedia. During some part of the day I wrote my journal, and took much pains in describing carefully and vividly all that I had seen, and this was good practice. My journal served also, in part, as letters to my home, and portions were sent to England whenever there was an opportunity. The above various special studies were, however, of no importance compared with the habit of energetic industry and of concentrated attention to whatever I was engaged in, which I then acquired. Everything about which I thought or read was made to bear directly on what I had seen or was likely to see, and this habit of mind was continued during the five years of the voyage. I feel sure that it was this training which has enabled me to do whatever I have done in science. Looking backwards, I can now perceive how my love for science gradually preponderated over every other taste. During the first two years, my old passion for shooting survived in nearly full force, and I shot myself all the birds and animals for my collection. But gradually, I gave up my gun more and more, and finally altogether, to my servant, as shooting interfered with my work, more especially with making out the geological structure of a country. I discovered, though unconsciously and insensibly, that the pleasure of observing and reasoning was a much higher one than that of skill and sport. That my mind became developed through my pursuits during the voyage is rendered probable by a remark made by my father who was the most acute observer whom I ever saw, of a skeptical disposition, and far from being a believer in phrenology. For on first seeing me after the voyage, he turned round to my sisters and exclaimed, Why, the shape of his head is quite altered! To return to the voyage, on September 11th, 1831, I paid a flying visit with Fitzroy to the Beagle at Plymouth, Thence to Shrewsbury to wish my father and sisters a long farewell. On October 12th, I took up my residence at Plymouth and remained there until December 27th, when the Beagle finally left the shores of England for her circumnavigation of the world. We made two earlier attempts to sail, but were driven back each time by heavy gales. These two months at Plymouth were the most miserable which I ever spent, though I exerted myself in various ways. I was out of spirits at the thought of leaving all my family and friends for so long a time, and the weather seemed to me inexpressibly gloomy. I was also troubled with palpitation and pain about the heart, and like many a young ignorant man, especially one with a smattering of medical knowledge, was convinced that I had heart disease. I did not consult any doctor, as I fully expected to hear the verdict that I was not fit for the voyage, and I was resolved to go at all hazards. I need not here refer to the events of the voyage, where we went and what we did, as I have given a sufficiently full account in my published journal. The glories of the vegetation of the tropics rise before my mind at the present time more vividly than anything else. Though the sense of sublimity, which the great deserts of Patagonia 
and the forest-clad mountains of Tierra del Fuego excited in me, has left an indelible impression on my mind. The sight of a naked savage in his native land is an event which can never be forgotten. Many of my excursions on horseback through wild countries, or in the boats, some of which lasted several weeks, were deeply interesting. Their discomfort and some degree of danger were at that time hardly a drawback, and none at all afterwards. I also reflect with high satisfaction on some of my scientific work, such as solving the problem of coral islands, and making out the geological structure of certain islands, for instance, St. Helena. Nor must I pass over the discovery of the singular relations of the animals and plants inhabiting the several islands of the Galapagos archipelago, and all of them to the inhabitants of South America. As far as I can judge of myself, I worked to the utmost during the voyage from the mere pleasure of investigation, and from my strong desire to add a few facts to the great mass of facts in natural science. But I was also ambitious to take a fair place among scientific men, whether more ambitious or less so than my fellow workers, I can form no opinion. The geology of St. Iago is very striking, yet simple. A stream of lava formerly flowed over the bed of the sea, formed of triturated recent shells and corals, which it has baked into a hard white rock. Since then, the whole island has been upheaved, but the line of white rock revealed to me a new and important fact, namely, that there had been afterwards subsidence round the craters, which had since been in action, and had poured forth lava. It then first dawned on me that I might perhaps write a book on the geology of the various countries visited, and this made me thrill with delight. That was a memorable hour to me, and how distinctly I can call to mind the low cliff of lava beneath which I rested, with the sun glaring hot, a few strange distant plants growing near, and with living corals in the tidal pools at my feet. Later in the voyage, Fitzroy asked me to read some of my journal, and declared it would be worth publishing. So here was a second book in prospect. Towards the close of our voyage, I received a letter while at Ascension, in which my sisters told me that Sedgwick had called on my father, and said that I should take a place among the leading scientific men. I could not at the time understand how he could have learned anything of my proceedings, but I heard, I believe afterwards, that Henslow had read some of the letters which I wrote to him before the Philosophical Society of Cambridge, read at the meeting held November 16, 1835, and printed in a pamphlet of 31 pages for distribution among the members of the society, and had printed them for private distribution. My collection of fossil bones, which had been sent to Henslow, also excited considerable attention among the paleontologists. After reading this letter, I clambered over the mountains of Ascension with a bounding step, and made the volcanic rocks resound under my geological hammer. All this shows how ambitious I was, but I think that I can say with truth that in after years, though I cared in the highest degree for the approbation of such men as Lyell and Hooker, 
who were my friends. I did not care much about the general public. I do not mean to say that a favorable review or a large sale of my books did not please me greatly, but the pleasure was a fleeting one, and I am sure that I have never turned one inch out of my course to gain fame. End of section three.